Mm-hmm. Right. Cool, guys. That's awesome. Ready? Is this going okay? Like, oh, yeah, so I, feel like should, I feel like I should be taking notes not on the content of the uh, on the uh, the cuts, but on the content of the conversation. I'm gonna like I'm gonna listen back to this podcast episode. This is awesome. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone: newbies who are just getting started with these topics organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wolt, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., Typically, I ask you how you're doing. This time, <laughs> for a special occasion, I have another opening for you, JM. Do you? Yes, I do. You're looking old today. You're looking, am. You're looking 50 episodes old. How about that? <laughs> Congratulations. Yay. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. When we started this thing uh, a couple of years ago, I thought to myself, you know, I'll be really lucky if we make it past 20. They always say the first five are with the gumption and excitement of something new. And then the next 15 are a slog. And we are at 50 episodes, my friend. I am so thankful that we got here and we're so excited to get more this season. And what's your baseline? Congratulations to you. How are you doing? How are you feeling about 50 episodes? I'm I'm absolutely doing well and and by the way the big and i had the same concerns by the way but the big thing that that i was thinking is like okay we do a handful of episodes but how do we sustain this and i could not have found a better guest for the show today uh, than anthony who we have on the show to talk about sustainability i think he doesn't talk about podcast sustainability but we're not that critical <laughs> here so welcome anthony to to our little show here well, hello. I'm very glad to be here. And congratulations on 50 episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're starting with this episode, our fifth season, which is, I think, also impressive uh, on on uh, being still alive, you know, when you're... Anyways, we can talk <laughs> about that a little bit later, you know, how many podcasts die before the 10th episode or before the first year. So we made it. <laughs> but we also want to know how to continue on. And we also want to talk about that. So the sustainability has been on my hit list for a couple of seasons now. And I know it's a huge hot button issue, a huge hot topic. There's a lot of political action going on right now around climate and sustainability and that component of things. Um, the whole topic of ESG, which I think we're going to delve into today, is a is a big one for, for corporations to establish and maintain reputation and brand integrity. And there's lots of things to, to go through. And we haven't really talked at all about it. So, Anthony, before we get into this whole shebang, because there's going to be a lot of the, the shebang is going to be big. But before we get into there, um, we want to know a little bit more about you. So tell us about yourself. Um, who are you? Where are you based out of? Uh, what do you do? And, and what got you into this practice of sustainability? Where, where did you come from and, and how did you get here? So my sustainability journey actually started when I started in international travel. Hmm. Um, 
I was in an exchange program back to the Soviet Union in 1989. I was a sophomore in college, and uh, my father was concerned that I was not taking university seriously enough. Uh, so he was like, okay, do you want to, you're taking Russian language in school. Do you want to go on this uh, exchange program? And I took him up on it through the University of Arizona. And that started my addiction to um, everything international. Um, absolutely incredible. Three months. Um, there was a group of 54 of us ranging in ages from 16 to uh, 75. And it, this was kind of a reality TV before reality TV existed. So we were actually in the Soviet Union. So that wow. was incredible. And that was my, my first step into sustainability in this, in this longer journey. Um, after that, I did an exchange program in 1994 and went back to Russia. Mm -hmm. um, I was an intern at Pricewaterhouse in the, in the Moscow office. And then after that, I went and got my master's at Thunderbird out in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, as soon as I graduated from there, I went back to PwC in 1996. I was there for five years. Uh, then the financial crisis hit. I don't know how many people know about this. 1998, 1999, it was pretty rough in Russia. Um, all the foreigners basically went home. Um, but my journey in Russia was not, not over yet. And this is where the sustainability part starts. Uh, there was a smaller American firm that worked to commercialize former Soviet technologies. Uh, we worked with an organization called the ISTC, which is International Science and Technology Center. Uh, their goal was to help Russian scientists that possessed nuclear secrets um, find new jobs. Uh, they worked closely with Vice President Gore. He did a, a tremendous amount of stuff um, during this time period in the area of nuclear nonproliferation. And so this is really incredibly important work. So this was my first taste in alternative energy technologies because there were many, many of them um, at these, uh, these uh, former Soviet, um, um, all these former Soviet scientists and at these institutions. Um, personal reasons brought me back to the States in 2004. And then I moved Back over to, I wasn't done with Europe yet, so I moved to the UK, started working for a company called Computer Sciences Corporation. Uh, that's where I started working in sustainability as my day job. Um, I worked there for several years. It's a huge company that most people haven't even heard of, and actually it got bought out, so it doesn't even exist anymore. But it had 60,000 people uh, working worldwide. They provided IT services uh, like the servers, desktops, and everything that goes with that. Um, they were greening their own company at this time, 2006. Um, it was a very big deal in the UK at that time to start greening your company. And they were starting to offer green services to their customers. Um, green IT isn't talked about much in North America, um, but it's really, it's super important. It takes a lot of energy and power to power all of our devices nowadays. And you have cloud storage, you have search engines. It all takes tons of energy. Um, but another aspect is the ability to save energy through using IT um, in the form of like smart buildings, smart devices, running things more efficiently, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so you're leveraging the IT technology. Hmm. Um, in 2010, uh, family issues brought me back to the States again. And that's when I started uh, my company called Kalis Consulting. Uh, the primary focus of Kalis was to answer the question that I heard the most as a consultant. 
is what do we do? How do we start in sustainability? What do we do next? Um, started the company by creating a comprehensive audit that became more automated through very complicated Excel files uh, after it had been around for a couple of years. And two years ago, uh, we created uh, Current State Online, which took everything up into the cloud. But um, not only uh, does Current State Online have our audit, but it also has other sustainability standards um, in the system too. Basically, it's a sustainability information system. It's online. It has project management functionality, uh, similar to what you would see in monday.com, uh, file storage, knowledge base, report generator, and it's one place that your entire team can log into and be on the same page. Um, it's just about to come out of beta, and I uh, hope to have an official launch uh, pretty soon. That's really cool. I'm very curious <laughs> to have a look at it once you've released it. But before we go into the meat of the episode, uh, which you already have started with, um, I, our audience likes to know a little bit more about the person behind it. And, and obviously, you gave us your, your quick rundown on this. But what are things like your hobbies, your interests, your, your bucket list items that you have? Yeah, yeah. Some of my favorite things in the world are linguistics and visiting different cultures, like complete cultural immersion. Not going to someplace as just a tourist, but learning the language and feeling it from the bottom up, the culture from the bottom up. Yeah. But um, I've loved linguistics for as long as I can remember. Uh, I started taking Russian language and I was kind of hooked from that because I wasn't very good at it. And that, that, could, that was a little bit of fire too. It was like, I, I found something I really wasn't very good at. And um, so I wanted to get better. Um, and then during, uh, during university, I took Arabic, I uh, took German, but yeah, so I really love linguistics. I, I didn't find out until I was 35 that I was dyslexic. Now I understand why it's so difficult for mm -hmm. me, <laughs> but I think I'm just drawn to the challenges, but also, um, the, the whole Soviet Union being in a, a culture, being in a country where you're not supposed to go or there are some place that we don't know that, you know, back in the late 80s, we didn't know much about mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, really. Um, we just knew that it was a great threat, that they could take us out at any moment. We could take them out at any moment. Um, they were evil. They were bad. They were against us. But there's a part of me that was like, they're human just like we are. So, I mean, that, that was kind of the draw. Yeah, I definitely can relate to this. So a, a, as a German moving to the US almost 16 years ago, you know, I know the culture shock and now I see it with my boys. Uh, they're now adults, you know, they went back to Germany and Austria and they have the reverse culture shock, which is interesting, you know, uh, plus a little bit of Austrian German in there, which is a little bit, sounds a little bit weird, but anyways, but also I was a, <laughs> an, an officer from the mid eighties to the mid nineties. You know, and, and going into the GDR and wow. all those things, it was like super weird, you know, like what, what is that? You know, and now after reunification 30 years later, it's just like any time, you know, yep, I can relate. Would you agree that the revolt reverse culture shock is actually, I found that to be more intense than the initial culture shock. Cause I think you're, you're waiting, you're kind of more prepared mm -hmm. when I came back to the States for, for different stints. Um, Yeah, I really 
I really kind of struggled with that. More. So I haven't moved back, but, uh, and, and the boys, they were five and seven when we moved to the U S so they had that idealistic thing of what kids have, you know, they, they visit their grandmother in Cologne, uh, whatever, sometimes, you know, but it's not like moving back because what you need is you need to learn those 200 phrases that carry you through the day. You know, uh, you, you, you get those unspoken things, you know, how do you interact with somebody, whatever, when you say thank you and when you don't, you know, th these type of things, you just learn it when you're, like you said, immersed into the situation. And, and I don't know if I'm yeah. really eager of the reverse culture shock. I, I heard it from friends who went back, you know, people who were employed with a German school here or with a consulate where it's time limited. And all of them said like, Ooh, it took us like six months to get back. And, and I don't know if I'm up for it. <laughs> once, once you've made that jump, I, I think anybody who's lived overseas for six months or greater, mm -hmm. you're no longer a, a member of the society that you left because it's never going to be the same. Yeah. And you're, no, you're never going to be a member of the, fully of the society that you go into. So you become kind of an internationalist. Yeah. And what I also noticed, yeah. a lot of people who, who hopped on that expat um, career, if you will, you know, they continue with that, you know, oh, I don't care where I am, you know, send me to Singapore, send me to the Middle East, whatever, you know, and, and they just don't want to go yeah. back. And, and from what I read is, well, some organizations just forget those guys, you know, that they, they advertise it as, oh, yeah, this is a big career change for you. And it's beneficial for your career, blah, blah, blah. And then you hop on a plane, and you're gone. And nobody at home cares about you. You know, and then you come back and say, oh, look what I did. And they say, huh, who are you? So that's that's a really weird, weird scenario. You can also find a place that has a culture very similar to yours. I'm based in Canada and I lived in Australia for a little while. And I got to tell you, very little culture shock. I mean, sure, uh, <laughs> the animals and uh, the whole the whole place is designed sort of to kill you. Um, there's a lot of very dangerous things um, that you might just come across and people are very casual about that. But I was like, okay, cool. It's just more nice people who are willing to sort of show you your, your way instead of, um, you know, saying a, they say, they say different things in, in, at the end of the sentences, but the, the, the temperance temperament's very similar. So <laughs> I like that idea. Something I loved about Russia, uh, being an American, especially during the early years, um, you were special. Mm -hmm. And people wanted to know you and you were interesting for people uh, that wore off after a decade or so. But then when I lived in the UK, um, I went from being special to not being special at all. Oh, quite <laughs> the opposite. Yes. Quite the opposite, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if they really love their former colonists, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I just I saw Hamilton recently and yeah, there's a there's a history. That's a that's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> well, talking about things we 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 you know, it's really good to to catch up and, and get to know you a little bit better, but I would love to to delve into the topic of today. And I hear ESG, I hear green, whatever, I hear sustainability. I've heard a lot of terms Let's talk about sustainability or, or whatever you choose to call it by defining some of the terms and by telling us sort of how we got here. So give us a little bit of a history lesson on this on this area and help us understand some of the core terms you'll be using in the conversation today. OK, well, sustainability has been with us um, basically since we've been civilized. Okay. Um, we really ran into this when... Um, 
North America was colonized by the Europeans. The indigenous people uh, had a different respect for their surroundings, and they saw a different role of where they fit into their surroundings. And it was a sustainable role. Um, you don't scorch the earth, you live within its means. So all the way going back to there, you know, we recognize that. Um, then another pivotal moment for civilization was the industrial revolution. Uh, this is the first time where we saw mass pollution and, on a worldwide scale. Uh, we had interne international um, economy based on finite resources for the first time since the Roman Empire, basically. So people had to start looking at things a little differently, that our economy is based on things that are going to run out eventually. So I think that's kind of the spark of the modern uh, sustainability um, movement. Um, so in the 19th century, uh, the 1800s, uh, there was a reaction to the Industrial Revolution. So you start to see the first echoes of a conserva uh, conservation movement. And that was when we started uh, establishing our national parks and just basically just having an understanding um, of our surroundings a little bit more. Um, environmentalism and the modern sustainability movement, uh, there's a very pivotal moment in a very pivotal book by someone called Rachel Carlson, and it was called Silent Spring, and it was published in 1962. And this book um, covered the adverse effects of synthetic chemicals on the environment. So we've okay. we had been in an industrial revolution for quite a while, and we were starting to go into the plastics revolution, and it was becoming much more chemically based. Um, this was really a landmark book that really brought that that topic out and brought it front and center. And it gets a lot of recognition as being kind of a, a watershed moment. Uh, another moment that really um, was quite significant was when the Cuyahoga river in the United States mm -hmm. um, caught on fire. So this okay. book comes out that river, uh, that book came out in 1962, the river caught on fire in 1969. And it wasn't the first time that river had caught on fire, but it's, it, it gave people a really good visual of, is this the world that we want to live in? And this is what we're creating. This is the byproduct of the way that we are living our lives. Um, so those were a couple of watershed moments. And I, if um, you were around during that time period in the seventies, you might remember those commercials with native American and he was crying and there were big efforts to beautify and to take care of litter and just to, to live differently in the 70s. And there was one episode of Mad Men that really, really brought this home. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this episode, but it was where they had the picnic on the side of the road and they're both sitting there and they, they had all the garbage and everything out there. Mm -hmm. And it was all on a big tablecloth. And at the end of the episode, there was a trash can actually right next to where they were sitting. At the end of the episode, they just picked up the tablecloth and just... <laughs> brought it in the air. All the trash went everywhere. I remember that. And it was just a completely different uh, time period and different uh, way of thinking. Um, so now we're starting to get into the modern era and we're getting into corporations responding to this. Um, the United Nations was really pivotal and they 
created something called Sustainable Development, and they put out a report called the Brundtland Commission, and this was published in 1987, and it was called Our Common Future. So this was pretty much the rise of the term and the movement for sustainable development. Hmm. And basically, this is just staying in our guardrails of, you know, not not running out of finite uh, materials and just having a, a consciousness of this. Um, then we go into the era of summits and international agreements. We're still in this era. Uh, one of the most significant one was the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, and this took place in 1992. Um, since that time, we've had the Paris Agreement, and I'm sure there will be more agreements in the future, but they're becoming more and more important. They're becoming more specific in the prescriptions that they are putting forward. Um, so that, that's not going <clears> to <throat> stop. Um, corporate sustainability and social responsibility, uh, as we know it now, it became, um, it started uh, pretty much in the 90s. And there was a very important um, book, and it was more of a report, actually. It's called the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change. Uh, it's a 700-page report, and it was released for the government of the United Kingdom, and this was in 2006. This was when I was just starting my job at CSC and I was just getting into sustainability. This was absolutely required reading. It was by Nicholas Stern and he was the chair of Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment uh, at the London School of Economics. And this is really a game changer with respect to business and sustainability. Mm -hmm. This report, it was a map of how we get from a carbon-based society to a non-carbon-based society. Um, it was very detailed. It showed that it could be done. Uh, it was just the will and the legislation needed to be in place. And along the way, um, not only could it be done, but it can be done and you could still make a profit. So this was a very um, important report and a very important moment, um, a map for businesses, how to get from point A to point B and point B being a non-carbon um, um, business environment. Yeah, I find that very interesting. But when I when I look at it and, and look at the different countries that are involved, there's obviously an unequal distribution of, of people accepting uh, these findings and, and those recommendations and all that stuff. So when I think about it in Germany, for example, the Greens started somewhere in the early 80s. You know, and they went through some growing pains and uh, fundamentalists versus realpolitica, uh, real you know, um, and all that stuff. But they have been in government since the late 80s on the state level and then obviously in the late 90s on the federal level. While here in the U.S., for example, th they are not even in a rounding error, you know, when, when you see them on the poll. And I'm curious what your opinion on that is, why – we have that unequal distribution of awareness and, and thereby also then institutions and laws and all that type of stuff. Yeah, this is very important because um, when I was in the UK in 2005, sustainability was extremely important and there were risks, business risks associated with sustainability. It was reputation risk. There was compliance risk because both the UK government and the EU were passing legislation that had actual financial ramifications and consequences for companies if they weren't in compliance. 
Mm -hmm. uh, that led to financial risk. Um, so if you're, you're not being in compliance, you can be fined. Um, so those three major risk factors were active in 2005, 2006. Um, in North America, had, we had nothing like that. There was absolutely no risks associated with sustainability. Um, the way that, and, and that, that situation continued in Europe and it's been that way ever since, and it's only gotten more intense. Um, the only way that North America got sustainability during this time period were the multinational companies like Unilever, like um, what are some other companies? Nestle. Mm -hmm. When they would come to the United States, they were not going to lower their standards just because they were working in North America or the United States. And why should they? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the way that sustainability was brought to the United States was through the supply chain. So the Unilevers and, you know, those big companies, they would put, um, they would require suppliers to meet minimum sustainability standards in the goods and the services they, that they provided. So that, that's, that's how it kind of infused into the, the North American market. However, in the past two to three years, that situation has completely changed. Um, the SEC, uh, three years ago, announced that they were going to put forth new rules on climate risk uh, disclosures that all public companies would have to um, put out there. Oh. So all of a sudden, in just a, you know, just in a second, American public companies were going to be exposed to investor risk, uh, compliance risk, financial risk and all of the other risks that the Europeans have been facing for 15 years. So the reason, one of the reasons why ESG and sustainability is so hot right now is because that has been a huge shift in the area of sustainability and how companies are responding to it. So now that the U S is, in, is included in these sort of like requirement generating bodies, then it, it opens up a lot of companies to new risk. I mean, the question is corporations don't have to do anything unless they're regulated to, or there's a sufficient market pressure. There hasn't been market pressure as much in the U S or I guess you haven't seen the market pressure in the U S if you're not a multinational. So it's been regulation based and now there's regulation. So everything has to change. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Um, the rules have been under review and they've been taking feedback. The SEC has. Uh, they were expected to come out the first quarter of this year okay. in 23. Um, they have yet to come out. Now they're, predict uh, they're predicting they'll come out in the fall. But what is going to be released, these are actual rules by the oh. SEC. So companies so, are prepared. They might actually be forced to comply to new regulations. Are they already making pre-changes in anticipation of what those rules might be? Many, many companies are because there will be consequences for the first mm -hmm. time, financial consequences, but also reputational consequences if with investors, because investors aren't going to want to invest in a company that's not prepared for dealing with the risks associated with climate change. Oh, so it right. all builds up. So all the pressure that the rest of the world's been feeling for a long time now is is coming home and that's that's very significant i no one knows the exact date that this is going to drop as soon as that drops 
um, it's a game changer. Yeah, that would be super interesting uh, when you look at different industries. You know, if you're a bank, for example, that's not that close to you, I would say. But if you're a stock listed energy company, well, holy cow, you know, that that challenges your business model, which is very interesting, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm thinking like right now, everybody does have a sustainability impact. Every company does operate and consume resources and cause potential risk that they have to address. I'm assuming more, some much more than others, but you tell me about the, the organizations that you're seeing addressing this right now, or you, who are coming to talk to you, or do they all come from a particular market sector or are they more distributed? Um, they come from all different sectors. Yeah. Um, the industries that seem to be the most active in trying to, preempt um, before the actual rulings come down are the ones that have exposure and a need for investors. Oh, interesting. Yes. Something that's uh, been really important in the last couple of years um, that is addressing the upcoming rules that are going to be put out by the SEC Uh, One of them is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Mm. And the acronym for this is TCFD. Uh, TCFD recommendations, they focus specifically on disclosing climate-related risks and opportunities in financial reporting. So it's it's closing that gap. It's including climate risk in normal business uh, disclosures, but it's Mm -hmm. kind of tagging it on, uh, on there. Um, it helps companies assess and disclose their climate related risks and opportunities in a consistent and comparable manner. So you mentioned, you mentioned two examples of, of regulation and, and of standards that are come there, but, uh, a, I'm super surprised that this will become mandatory here in the U S I never thought I would see this, but it's great. Um, but if I hear in this podcast, the first time about this, um, Are there any standards that that you would recommend that people look into? And and I'm pretty sure you have a long list of those, but what would be the first steps that you would give, say, uh, if you are uh, the architect uh, lead in your organization to say, oh, holy cow, I need to smarten up on this and I need to see what is the impact on my businesses, on my IT and all those type of things. Is there, do you have the the laundry list of standards and, and things that people should look at? Yeah, this, this is what uh, my company has been doing uh, for the last decade. And this is the first step in the process. And um, this is not in, intended to be a plug, but this is where you need to start. This is, this is what my business does. So the first step for any company is to understand your sustainability performance at the moment. Um, you should find some kind of instrument in the market where you can do an audit of your current sustainability program. You might have a sophisticated program. You might not have a program at all, but you do need to take that initial inventory. So what you do is you basically you have a list of everything in sustainability that you can possibly do. Everything's included on that list. Then you take that list and you take everything that has nothing to do with your business. You check those off and you take those off the list. So they're off the table. The remaining items, you look at them. And you determine, am I doing this or not? If so, to what extent am I doing this? And that'll, that'll 
put it into a data set where you can heat map it later. You know, it becomes useful data at that point. At the end of that process, you'll know everything that you're doing and to what extent, and then you'll have a list of things that you're not doing, but you could be doing because of your industry. So that's that's any company's roadmap is you, you start there. So you know exactly where you're at, you know your next steps on everything, and then it's it's the research phase. What What's the best thing for your business? How do you fit that into your business strategy? Yeah, so it sounds kind of like an architecture as isn't to be, but your to be is driven by regulatory obligation or best practice, I suppose, which does lead me to the question, are there, like, I know there's a, the UN um, guidelines on on sustainability, the the, the principles, the, the UN principles. There are mm-hmm. a bunch of, like, two Bs that you could consider. Which ones do you advise? Or where, where, where do people start when they're looking at that, that the master list of all possibilities that they should be, aiming towards so once once you know exactly where you're at and exactly what you should be doing next that's when you should take your focus and put it on the industry that you're in because every industry um the first step is not business is not industry specific and it shouldn't be industry specific because you can go that that's a pandora's box you can go down so many tangents it just becomes so confusing it's not useful so you get that get the roadmap and then you look at your industry. Uh, the first standard um, that I would recommend looking at for your industry is called SASB. These are um, industry-specific sustainability standards. And basically, it'll be a collection of metrics, uh, anywhere from 7 to 10. But they're specifically for your business, specifically for your industry. And... Um, you will need to know those metrics and those KPIs for your industry regardless. So that's that's the easy step. Uh, the next step is looking at the array of different standards and different frameworks that are out in the market. And there are a ton of them. But depending on your business, you're going to want to use a framework that makes sense for your business. So if you're in a business that's carbon-centric, we would say, okay, we think that you should um, go to the carbon disclosure project and you know follow that, follow those standards because that's all about carbon. Um, if you're an international company and you have operations in different parts of the world, and we'd say, well, in that case, the global reporting initiative, the GRI, would probably best suit your needs there. But having an expert to kind of guide you into the framework. Uh, that would be best for your business. Um, that's that's the next step and kind of the final step. Well, that's really good. And it's, it sounds like you're you're starting to lay out a path, um, not just for an analysis, but actually to act on things. And we were gonna we're gonna get to that in our second section, which talks a little bit more about the how and making it practical. Um, so for now, why don't we take a brief break uh, to let people's brains unwind from all these acronyms and explanations that have have started to permeate the conversation. I think this is really great. And if folks haven't had a chance to get a primer on sustainability, or maybe you're not working in it, man, Anthony, this is is a really great way to get to sort of jump both feet into this and and get thinking about sustainability in your organization, which leads to the question for people as we take a brief musical break, which is how is your organization approaching or potentially not approaching a topic of sustainability um, as a strategic topic? 
and with this, with the tactics and activities that they're doing. What are you working on within that context or not? Um, how is that working? So do you have clear directives? Do you understand what you need to do and why? And where do you see opportunities so far to improve on how you approach sustainability? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our second section, the how. Welcome back. Um, and this is an awesome conversation, Anthony. And thanks for sharing all your personal experience with that. But I'd like to switch the topic a little bit more towards a bus term that, that some of our listeners might have heard called ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. And uh, I'd be curious, what is your opinion on that? And how did you get into that topic? Because I know you have a little backstory on, on this topic. Yeah, yeah. ESG is quite the buzzword right now. And if you've been in sustainability, if you've been a sustainability consultant for 10 years or so, um, it, it, it kind of takes you back because the, the key word, the key acronym that we lived with for 10 years that was so important was corporate and social responsibility, CSR. Mm. So what happened to CSR? Well, it's just kind of morphed into ESG. You never really hear about CSR. You might hear that a company puts out a CSR report. Um, some of them are, you know, some companies are still calling them that. The first time that we hear ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and governance, was around the year 2015. And that's when there was a movement by investors to set up a framework where climate-related risks could be defined and determine which disclosures uh, made the most sense. This was a precursor to the SEC's actions uh, a couple years later, where they propose rules on climate risk disclosures. Is this the just an evolution of, of CSR? Like, is ESG the same thing rebranded? Like, tell me about what lessons were learned from how it was approached before and how is it actually more beneficial or how is it different with ESG? That's a very good question. ESG hijacked CSR. Ah. <laughs> it did. CSR was fine by itself. Yeah. Now, the added element, ESG, is the governance component. And that was oh, put in okay. by investors. So, in essence, ESG is more the investor's perspective and it's a framework that provides investors with information that they need to know and if you're a sustainability consultant it, it kind of kind of takes you back a little bit I feel like you know sustainability has been hijacked a little bit and investors came in they wrote their own you know have their own buzzword they wrote their own framework but what they're doing is they're they're trying to extract the information that they need for investors so this is very Investor-centric, this is information investors need. It's all about risk. It's all about opportunity. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a little different than CSR. But it's been sold as if it's somehow 
the new wave of environmentalism in corporations. Yeah, yeah, that's the buzzy part of it. That's the buzzy part. Ah. Um, ESG will go away eventually. Uh, CSR was replaced. ESG will be replaced. But something that's really important to realize is these are still just little subsections of the greater sustainability. That sustainability is everything. CSR, that was a little subsection of, you know, just a part of the greater sustainability. ESG is real hot right now. It'll come. It'll go. TCFD is a very hot framework. It's already in the process of being replaced by larger frameworks. Um, Interestingly, TCFD was never meant to be a permanent framework. It was a bridge to get to someplace else. But it was the bridge to introduce uh, climate-related risk disclosures, which is really important. So when you're looking at like consulting and working with clients who are trying to trying to understand the landscape, talking about how the principles of ESG, the approach of ESG, and the requirements or guidelines from TCFD interact with each other. Like what what is there an overlap? Is it a, is it a just two different words for the same thing? Does one have regulatory obligations? What what are the responsibilities of an organization to look at these and how do they look at them differently? If investors are important to an organization, and this will vary depending on the industry that you're in and what what type of a company that you're in, if investors are important, you will want to look into the TCFD and follow that framework. Now, the TCFD, it is a point of view. It's a way to display information to investors in the language that they understand it. And what they're looking for, they're looking for an identification of all the risks that are climate related, an identification of all the opportunities that are climate related, um, and then a plan to deal with both the opportunities and the risks. And then an analysis, it's called a scenario analysis, a deeper dive into what are the actual financial implications that can happen from these financial risks. And then at one degree change in in temperature and at 1.5, possibly two. So the actual nuts and bolts of how is this going to affect your business? How prepared are you? Um, Do you want to like for some companies, Uh, investing in properties that are on a coastline. That's, that's a real concern now. Oh, of course. Yeah. Do you want to invest in a company that is prone to flooding in a, you know, in an area that's prone to flooding in an area that's prone to heat stress or water stress or um, you know, hurricanes, Uh, all these things are more important and where you're seeing this, Actually, one of the first things that's happening, it's in the insurance industry. Um, Insurance companies are refusing to cover certain companies and certain properties in certain locations for certain things. And you're already starting to see this. Yeah, I've read about that California, that it's hard to get an insurance for your home because they have so many wildfires and insurance companies just don't want to hop on on this train. But I do have another question. So I get a little bit of the impression that there's a lot of regulations, a lot of guidelines, a lot of things coming out that I as an organization have to comply with or will have to comply with in the future. Um, 
there might be stuff in there that I don't like. You know, is there a way for organizations to participate in in these things, or are organizations just being at the receiving end of uh, those standardization efforts? They organizations, especially publicly traded organizations, do have a voice, and they've had a voice with the SEC for the past year and a half. Um, a lot of these, uh, especially if they're from the the you know like the United States government. They will put these proposed rules out in, you know, out to be reviewed. And there will be a review period, a public review period where you get feedback from corporations, you get feedback from, you know, many different, uh, many different sources. And then they decide on what rules to actually. Release. Yeah. Let, let me, let me rephrase that a little bit. Um, obviously, uh, climate, sustainability, those are all global topics, right? Um, when I look at our listenership, about 40% are from North America, 60% are from someplace else, Europe mostly. Um, there's obviously a different, um, how do I say that, climate, you know, in regards to regulation. Uh, so it's it's much more stricter, <laughs> if you will, right? But then we also see the, the up-and-coming nations in Southeast Asia, you know, China, India, and all those hotspots that we see right now. Who might care less about this? So how do those standards and the contribution of the organizations that are affected by this handled worldwide? Is it somehow coordinated or is it, as I would suspect, separate? And in some areas of the world, people care and in other areas of the world, people don't care. Or what is your observation of that landscape? There are two, two aspects to that that I see. You have international organizations like the UN and they try to do things on, you know, a world basis and for areas such as those where there's going to be a transition, there's going to be things that perhaps certain areas of the world will have difficulty handling. Uh, they put programs in place to try to help with that. Um, the other side is multinational corporations put themselves at risk for parts of their supply chain being in areas who aren't going to be compliant. So there's great incentive for those parts of the world or, um, you know, facilities in those parts of the world to be up to the world standard. Otherwise, you can go somewhere else to do your business. Yeah, I, I hear that. I'm also curious, and I don't say in any form or fashion that I really know what I'm talking about, but what from what I see when speaking with clients that, uh, are affected by this and, and we're working with a partner organization that has sustainability as a topic. Um, it typically boils down to two aspects. It boils down to regulatory compliance. I think that's what we spoke about a lot. Uh, and it boils down to supply chain management. Is, uh, is there or are there other areas that you see either today or in the future that will become a similarly prominent focus like those two topics? The only other thing that comes to mind is the handling of uh, waste and pollution, perhaps. Uh, I think the two that you mentioned are the very, you know, the most important. But um, there's going to be a larger focus on countries accepting, you know, e-waste, dangerous waste, plastic waste, um, that's about the only thing else that comes to mind. I, I think the two that you mentioned are going to be the strongest from now on into the future. 
I would have expected like energy creation or energy transportation, you know, that those would be the, the big topics. You know, like I said a little bit earlier, uh, IKEA is putting solar panels on on their roofs, you know, and all that type of stuff. Or I read an article about that China is pushing green technology like crazy, not because they want to be green, but they want to be uh, energy independent, which obviously strengthens their global positioning and all all these things. So I was thinking it would go into that direction. So I'm a little bit surprised that this is not the, the next hot thing, but I learned something. One good thing is the uh, the clean energy, the technology transfer that's required for that is easy. So as industrialized countries that are going to have the renewable energy they're going to be able to transfer that wherever they want to. They're going to be able to, you know, electrify, you know, a, uh, you know, a facility in a country that may not have that. They can just bring that in. So that's going to be easy, an easy fix. But that doesn't take away the problem that some resources that are needed for creating batteries and all that stuff are uh, limited available on Earth. You know, when I think about the, the deserts in northern Chile, uh, where they get the lithium from, you know, and they start digging like crazy and it looks like West Virginia without the mountains. Oh, wait, that could be the same at some point in time. But anyways, so uh, when I look at that, that's obviously an issue, you know, because it's it's uh, just a limited amount of resources. And what does that mean for those areas where you do the mining? So interesting topics. Yeah. About... About 20 years ago, the United States kind of de-invested in rare earth minerals uh, because it's expensive, it's not clean, it's ugly, you know, and, you know, PR-wise, it's best to do that in another country where you don't have to see it or look at it. Yeah, um, It's just as ugly in China, but they invested heavily in that. Um, at, a, at a point in history like we had with COVID, I think the entire world realized how interdependent we are. And there are forces in place that are going to restart the rare earth element, you know, rare earth uh, um, minerals, uh, that extraction uh, locally. Mm, interesting. So yeah. I, I, I wanted, I wanted to, to loop back on something because this whole conversation, I feel like it's, it's often falling into this idea of, of you need to consult guidelines. You need to understand the expectations placed upon you, KPIs or benchmarks you need to be hitting. You need to draft policy documents. You need to put it in your corporate strategy. You need to communicate it to investors. But when we get down to brass tacks, what are you often recommending that actually changes in the organization? So what actions does an organization take based off of some of the things we've heard. So the focus on ESG or CSR, the focus on the TCFD, the focus on your industry specific regulations. What do you actually change and how do you execute on that change or how do you advise executing on that change? That's a really good question. And that's the, really the, the holy grail of sustainability. Because when we start talking to a company, um, we go through that process that I mentioned before. You do an inventory, uh, you look at your industry, and then you figure out which frameworks work best for your uh, for your company. Um, once you have gone through that process and you're in year two, what is inherent in that process is what are you doing? You're looking at how you do what you do, and you're looking at ways to make that more efficient. You're looking at what 
resources you're using to do what you do and seeing if there's a better way to do that. Uh, you're looking at it and you're trying to find a way to do it in a more energy efficient way. And the great thing that comes out of that is innovation. That's, that's the key. That's what you want to see because that like opens people's eyes and it's like, Oh, we can still do what we're doing, but we can do it in a much better way or, Oh, we can do other things that are even better than what we're doing right now. So it's, it's sparking that innovation. Um, that's the Holy grail of sustainability because once you look at what you've done and you realize you can do it better. Um, yeah, the sky's the limit. That's a really good answer. Innovation is the holy grail of ESG. I love that. And I, I feel like there's there's some great questions that people are going to have um, after this episode. Uh, in the conclusion, we're going to talk about how to get in touch with you. But for now, what I'll ask you is one more, one more big holy grail moment or one more big uh, moment here. Put on or, or look into your crystal ball. What does the future of sustainability look like? in North America, particularly the United States, or worldwide? Where do you see it going as a practice of the people like you who are specialists in it and as an applied framework for organizations who are looking to comply and for governments who are looking to set out regulations? So put out, get that crystal ball out. Tell me what, what's going to come in the future. <laughs> well, I think the future of sustainability, um, it's going to be everywhere. And frankly, without it, we don't have a future. <laughs> so, but fair fair. I, I, I fully believe it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be a revolution. Uh, we're on the cusp of entering an era of rapid change. Uh, the change won't necessarily be what we're doing, but the change is going to be how we're doing it. Uh, we're still going to go places. We're just going to use different energy to get there. We're still going to eat food. It's just going to be farmed differently. Business are still going to make things and offer services. It's just going to be more efficient and use fewer resources. Um, will it affect our standard of living? Uh, there's no reason it has to be. The naysayers are going to really concentrate on this and say, you know, they're going to say it's going to be, everything's going to be more expensive. Everything's going to be worse. Everything, you know, you know, they're complain, complain, victim. Um, what we need to do is bust up the monopolies a little bit and battle corruption where it exists. And we go through, you know, it's a cycle. Uh, we go through an economic cycle where there are just times, periods of time in which we kind of just have to shake things up a little bit, shake the tree a little bit. So that's nothing new. Something that will change, I think, is that we're probably not going to use the word sustainability as much. Uh, it's just going to be the new way that we're living. So mm -hmm. it's it, it'll it'll cease to be kind of a thing, mm -hmm. you know, itself. And it's just going to be a new mode of continuous improvement. Um, it would just be a new new way of life. The power windows, if you will, of corporate operations. No one's going to mention them anymore. It's just how you do yeah. it. And for companies, um, this is way back in 2006. That was when everything was green. Everyone talked about green this, green that. Mm -hmm. And um, people were just sick of hearing about green stuff. So when I would go in and we'd talk to clients – 
I would say right off the bat, okay, you're probably like really sick of hearing how everything's green or going to be green. Everywhere that you see the word green, just surplant that word and put in smart. And then let's go from there because everything in business that we're talking about green, is just a smarter way of doing it. So it's not green IT, smart IT, smart this, smart that. And that, that's all, that's all it is. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I'm just curious if there is a time urgency there. You know, you mentioned the temperature rising and all those type of things, which I'm not sure what impact that has in regards to the speed of the organizational change. And, and we all know the hardest thing to change is the people, right? It's not the technology. It's not the process. It's the damn people who don't want to change. Do you have an opinion on that? I, I do. And I think um, what, what scientists were saying 10 years ago, um, I'll never forget it. They said climate change, it's not going to be some huge thing that you can feel immediately necessarily. But one of the biggest results is going to be weird weather, strange weather. Yeah. And I think that everyone can be, can share in that because we're having droughts where we didn't previously have droughts. Uh, it doesn't just rain in Tulsa anymore. It pours when it rains, it pours. And if it's not pouring, we're in drought. So weather has gotten weird and I think everyone can feel this. So I think that can break through that barrier of, oh, okay, well, this is weather and then there's climate. They're different things but one is related to the other. Well, that's an, I think that's an interesting point to, to sort of cap us off on. I'm, I mean, I'm hearing, I'm convinced, obviously, that without sustainability, we don't have a future. That's just sort of par for the course for watching things happen. And I'm, it's as bad as 100-year storms every five years or every two years or every year are, at least it's building more public support through observance. You can see it with your eyes. You can see it that your house no longer exists. You can see it that your roads are flooded. So there's more of a call to action emerging from that. But now I want to turn it back to our audience and talk about the future for you, our, our listeners and practitioners in the realm of ESG or sustainability or whatever it's called in the crystal ball that, that Anthony brought. Um, how can you see yourself and your organization evolving the practice around sustainability or ESG? How can you see yourself, your actions, your policies, and your, your procedures changing the impact to the way in which the company affects the world around us? Um, what have you learned from today's, today's conversation that could help make the case for an increased focus and dedication to the practice of sustainability? for you and your organization. We'll take our final break of the conversation and come back with our last thoughts and conclusions on the episode. The wind will blow But it's just changing It's just changing The wind, the wind will blow oh, oh, But it's just changing Welcome back. Um, Anthony, this was an awesome conversation, but 
uh, I got a little bit of a, I don't know, bad taste in my mouth when I was thinking about during the break about what that means for us as humanity. And I, I don't want to end the episode on a, on a low note. So do you see when you think about the future of sustainability and, and where we're all going, do you see some glimpses of hope for us? We would say, okay, yeah, it's it's bad, but it's not that bad, and we can change it because of. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely see hope. It is not necessarily from our generation. I think we might be um, brought into sustainability kicking and screaming, many many of us. But <laughs> if you think about the perspective of somebody that's under thirty, yeah. um, our generation, we always thought that we were going to do better than our parents. Uh, that was just the belief because our parents had done better than their parents who had done mm -hmm. better than their parents who had come out of the great depression. Um, our, we had a realization, um, wages were stagnant for 30 years. Um, people our age are not necessarily better off than our parents. And that, that's kind of shocking for us. But if we look to the generations that are younger, they're not just facing, you know, an economic disparity, um, they're facing the earth not being livable. Uh, they're talking about mm -hmm. pollution levels, uh, numbers. Uh, I'm not even familiar with the pollution levels, but I hear, hear people talking about it all the time. Uh, how is your air quality today? That's, it's just unimaginable. Um, but the hope is with them because I think they don't want that type of future. And I think that they will really start to be more active and find a greater voice and make the actual changes that need to be made. Um, and they'll vote it in. They'll be activists for it. And I think that's where our future is. And they're savvy. They're not as susceptible to propaganda um, as older people are. But also uh, getting the word out. They're more savvy about that. Uh, they don't fall for things. Uh, as much. And they, there are a lot of them <laughs> and they're fighting for their future. They're fighting for their lives. And if they want to have any, you know, if they want to have kids, can you imagine being 30 years old now and bringing children into the world? Uh, the burden that would be on your shoulders of, should I do this? Yeah. But I hope they find a way to um, bring this change to societies in a way that is compatible with the way how we do things here. So to give you the example for those of our German listeners here, you're very well aware of the last generation, you know, the people who just glue themselves on roads and uh, create big traffic jams and whatnot, you know. Um, I don't know if that's the right way. So I think people should uh, be active, Uh, they should voice their concerns. They should be active in politics and they need to change the rules. So go vote, right? I think that's the, the big thing, what you can do and, and be involved in those standards organizations and creating those standards, you know, just don't sit at home and, and just wait and let things do to you, but be active and contribute to those changes. But to... Come back, Anthony, again. I think everybody who's listening to this episode would say, oh, this is a very interesting topic. And the, the ultimate question that I would have is, where can I learn more about this? And, and how do I get in contact with that interesting person who just spoke with us for about an hour? 
Well, I can, I can leave my email and anyone um, is free to contact me directly. Uh, I'd be thrilled to hear from you. And um, also, uh, my company has a website. There's tons of good information there. Uh, that's mm-hmm. more for the, the business, the business uh, side of it. Um, but yeah, those are probably two of the easiest ways to get in touch. And I would assume you're on LinkedIn as well. So we would put uh, all those resources on the show notes. And with that, JM, I'd like to hand it over to you. Yeah. Speaking of the show notes, uh, thank you to all of our listeners for coming along with us on this wonderful journey. I mean, it's perhaps one of the most important journeys of our collective lifetimes, which is a journey to a sustainable world. And a huge thank you to Anthony for a fantastic primer on all the things we need to start thinking about now as we implement them in our organizations at a strategic level and at a tactical level, and then as a ritual, as a, as a, as a habit in our operations going forward. Now, if you want to find out more about things, you can go to the show notes at whatsyourbaseline.com for this episode specifically, slash episode 50. Um, and you can leave us a comment. You can give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you, particularly about this very important topic. Um, you can email us at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com or just go onto LinkedIn, comment, share, see what's going on in the conversation around sustainability and particularly sustainability in the scope of process and architecture. But until we speak again, friends, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I've been Anthony Gilbert. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one.